0: It seems that in recent years there has been a growth in our, our culture about excitement concerning what are sometimes called NDEs, near-death experiences. We see a lot of books, a lot of movies, short stories and other things where people talk about what they see at near death or some even claim to have died and, and seen part of heaven or part of the other side and then come back and tell their story. And of course, some of those stories have been quite literally proven to be false. The people have admitted to making them up. And I don't question the sincerity of the stories. And it's not our goal this morning to talk about NDEs, to talk about their sincerity or their, their realness, but simply to, to talk about how we have a fascination with that so much in our culture. But in Luke chapter 16, we have something that's far more interesting than any of those stories that we might read or see on the movie screen, or hear even someone else tell. Of course, in Luke chapter 16, in that text we read a part of a moment ago, we have what's commonly called the rich man and Lazarus. And I'll let you decide for yourself if you want to call this a parable or if you want to call this a real story that Jesus is relaying to us. Either way, the the emphasis on this story is simply to prepare for eternity while we have time. And What makes this story so powerful is the one who told it. Remember that Jesus is God, John chapter one and verse one reminds us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God and because Jesus is God, he has perfect eternal knowledge, and so even as he speaks of something that 's, if we please, on the other side, he is speaking of he is speaking from perfect knowledge, eternal knowledge and it 's because of that that he is able to fill this story, whether parable or real with powerful imagery but before we get to the main part of our lesson this morning i want to make make a point this is the sugar stick passage luke chapter 16 the story of the rich man lazarus this is the sugar stick passage that we go to to talk about what happens to someone when they pass from this life Some suggest we go directly to heaven or directly to hell when we pass away, but Luke 16 seems to make it clear that we go to sort of a a waiting place, sometimes called Hades or the Hadean realm, awaiting judgment day. There's no proof in scripture that someone goes directly to heaven or directly to hell and then returns to the judgment day and then returns to heaven or to hell. However, if we go to a waiting place, such as this story seems to indicate, we know our fate. In fact... Judgment day becomes more like sentencing day for those who have passed before the return of Jesus. Those who are in Abraham's bosom or paradise know they'll be in a place of perfect eternal bliss in heaven. And those who are in the place described in the story as torment know where they will end up as well, in a place of eternal torment in hell. But this morning I want us to think about the rich man in Luke chapter 16. The one who ended up in torment And from this story, we're going to think about what it would be like to be unprepared for eternity. We're calling this morning's lesson, A Message from Torment. If the rich man were able to preach this morning, if he were able to talk to us from that place, what are some things that he would want us to know? I think the text gives us several. I want to share with you three that we learn about that place where he was or is. And then I want us to think about one that he specifically mentions in the story that I know He would want us to know if he were preaching this lesson this morning. In the first place, he would want us to know that the torture of that place is unbearable. Possibly the most well-known picture in this entire story is found in verse 24. Before you ever even get there, notice that verse 23 describes the the circumstance, the place where this rich man was, as being in torment. The word that's used for torment there was one that later came to us as the idea of that uh, that instrument of torture, the the rack that you sometimes hear about in the Middle Ages. But it was a, a torturous machine, but it came from the idea of just torture. But it's very interesting that there's a similar word that had to do with the bottoms of the feet. And so the idea behind this word literally is pain or torture that goes to the bottom. It is pain that goes from head to toe. It is complete pain, complete torture. Some suggest that the idea is it's torture that brings one down. And it's because of that then you have that very famous picture in verse 24 where even a drop of water, a drop of water small enough to go on the tip of one's finger, the tip of one's hand would be enough to bring some level of relief to the man who was in torment. I want you to think about that picture. There is no relief. None. I don't know how thirsty you've ever been or how hot you've ever been or anything else, but can you imagine being so tortured that literally one drop of water could be felt to bring relief? That's how bad this man was. And it's the reason he could draw the picture and our attention where he said, I am in anguish in this flame. Literally, I am continually in anguish. It's ongoing, unceasing. It had been true that he was hurting. It was continuing to be true that this flame was bringing him anguish or torment. The word also has the idea of sorrowing behind it. When it's used this way, it means intense sorrow. But here it has that behind it. It's the idea simply of intense pain, intense torture. And it's a form that's just ongoing, never ending. Put those things together A torturous pain that is very real, that is ongoing, unceasing, and unrelenting. It never lets up a bit. A torture that is so real that even one drop of water would bring some level of relief to the point that it could be felt. It is unbearable. Now, I fully understand that it is not popular to talk about eternal punishment. I I understand that. But, folks, the Bible never minces words. It, It is consistent in describing the waiting place of the wicked as well as the eternal hell, the eternal place, as being places of terrible, unbearable pain. From the picture of fire to the picture of darkness to the Bible teaching us that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, it is clear that it is pain like we can never really imagine. I think the rich man would want us to know that. That the pain he, was, he is going through is unbearable and Unceasing. I think if the rich man could preach this morning, he would also want us to know that the separation of that place is permanent. One of the more awful pictures found in this story is found in verse 26, where the rich man is told, and besides all this, there is a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now, of course, this is one of the passages we sometimes use to talk about that idea, that, the false teaching of, of purgatory, where we can pray people out of limbo, if you want to think of it that way. They're, they're in eternity, but they don't know where they're going, and we can pray them to heaven. It's also the, a passage reminds us that we can't be baptized for those who have already died and, and then save their souls after this life, after this life is over. The, the idea, I don't know what this chasm or this gulf looks like. None of us does. The key is not what the chasm looks like. Don't focus on that. The key is that it's called firmly fixed. Firmly fixed. Literally, firmly placed. And it makes certain we get that picture in our mind then. We're told that no one can cross over it. Of course, we could picture those who are in torment wanting to go over to the place of paradise. That makes perfect sense. Of course they would. Who wouldn't want to cross over that that chasm or that gulf over to the place of paradise? But just to make certain that we get the idea that this is a permanent separation, it's even told that those who are in paradise cannot pass to those who are in the place of torment. By the way, that's what brings this up in the story in the first place, isn't it? Bring some water over to cool my tongue. Those who are in the place of paradise are those who have lived their life wanting to help people and doing things and encouraging and bringing cool water to those who are in such need. But not in eternity. Not after this life is over. There is no crossing either way. The rich man wanted even just that one drop of water. And even that could not be brought. The destiny of each person is fixed. It is established. It is permanent. Don't you think that's one of the main reasons why the rich man wanted someone to go back and warn his living brothers? Yes, it was because of the awful suffering. There's no doubt about that. But it's also because of his realization that this is permanent. Yes, he would be separated from his brothers if they became faithful and and lived on the other side. But they would enjoy that place. And he wanted that for them. You know, sometimes we sing a song about heaven that contains a beautiful line. In fact, sometimes it brings a tear to my eye. When we sing the line, it's a place where separations come nevermore. I love that description of heaven. A place where separations come nevermore. I've said before that there are a lot of words we will say in heaven, but one word we will never say in heaven is the word goodbye. We will not utter that word. But those like the rich man who are in torment, and then those who are in hell for all eternity, they will know the feeling of separation. And more than just being separated from other people, those who are lost Well, they'll know the worst kind of separation. They'll be separated from God. I don't know who you think the the worst, most evil person who's ever lived uh, is or was, and I'm not going to start naming names to give ideas. But each one of us probably has someone from from history or, or or the news or whatever that that has to be the worst person who's ever lived. That person has to has to have done the the worst possible things anybody could have ever done. But there is no person who has ever walked the face of this earth no matter how righteous and no matter how evil, who knows what it's like in this life to live away from the presence of God in a certain sense. Simply the air that they breathe is there because God gives it to them. Simply the food they eat is from the grace of God. The fact that they are living is because God has put in the processes of, of life and the ways in which we can walk in this life and live in this life. But Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 tells us that those who are suffering will be suffering the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. May I suggest to you, that's the worst punishment of hell. None of us knows what it's like to be completely away from the presence of God. Oh, those of us who are faithful draw nearer to Him in this life. We know His presence in a very, very special way. But no one knows what it's like to be completely away from God. But they will in hell. Paul said to those at Mars Hill that God gives to man all things. And one of these days, everyone will recognize that. The separation is permanent. I think the rich man would want us to know that. And then I think the rich man would also want us to know that the memories are enduring. I suppose the most haunting part of this entire story is found in verse 25. When the rich man begins to be shown the perspective with which he should look at things, Abraham says to the rich man, Son, remember. Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Think about that word, remember. I don't know how it works, okay? But it seems that Jesus is making it clear that we have some level of memory beyond the grave. Now, I fully know that we I will still be me and you will still be you. I don't know what, but I sometimes guess will it be our 18-year-old selves or our 28? I don't know. All I know is that 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that we will have a changed, immortal body, a body that's not corrupt. I don't know. If I'd like a smaller nose in eternity, but I don't, whatever. As long as I'm there, I don't really care as long as I'm in heaven. I don't know if I'll be the 18-year-old me or the 30-year-old me or the 90. I don't, I don't really care as long as I'm in heaven. But the Bible does make it clear, I will be me and you will be you. And part of that is... We will have some level of memory beyond this life. Can you imagine the rich man as he's in that horrible physical pain, if you please, the, the, the fire and all those things, and remembering? He knows who Lazarus is. He, he remembers that, that guy that laid at his, his gate outside of his house. He, he knows who that was, and he, he's going to remember passing by and Never so much as reaching out to help. He's going to remember that. And he's going to replay that tape in his head over and over and over and over for all eternity. Here's someone who comes to worship. And is so close to responding to the Lord's invitation. But for whatever reason, week after week, just chose not to. The sermon went a little long, and so I didn't want to keep everybody over. Or I know I need to, but I don't really want to embarrass myself by stepping out into an aisle and actually doing that in front of people. Or I'll just get with the preacher one day during the week, but I know he's busy, so I don't want to do that. Or I just really am scared, so I'll just grip, grip the seat. We could go through all kinds of examples. Can you imagine? Son... Remember. H. Leo Bowles said it well. He said, remember is a fearful word at this time. There was nothing the rich man could remember that would be a satisfaction to him now. Memory keeps alive the unpleasant as well as the pleasant things of life. The rich man had only to be reminded of the past to understand the reason of his present misery. I want you to think with me for a second. Have you ever thought about the fact that there are certain lines in songs that we sing in worship that are universally true? Now, now the whole song may be true of those of faith, but there are certain lines that anybody could sing. For for example, when we sing the line of the song, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. That's true of every person who's ever lived. Now, I know what the full song is talking about. It's talking about Christians looking forward to that day in anticipation because it's the day we've lived our life for. We, we, we can't wait to, to enter heaven. But the simple fact when we say those single words, that, that single phrase, when the roll was called up yonder, I'll be there, that's true of everybody because that book of life will have every person's name in it, whether they've done good or whether they've done evil. But in a much more serious and much more sobering way, May I suggest to you another line of a song that we sing from time to time that is true of everyone. For those who are faithful, it gives us hope. For those who are unfaithful, it should be haunting. You ready for it? We will understand it better by and by. For those of us who are faithful, that gives us hope. I I want to know why I'm trying to be faithful, and yet this negative thing happens in my life. I want to know why we're trying to be faithful and yet people don't like the church and don't like morality and keep attack i want to under and in some sense on the other side we will finally see things from god's perspective and understand why all these negative things happen all these difficult things happen and it's possible i'm not suggesting this is absolutely true it's possible we may not even really care when we're over there because we're where we've wanted to be but we will finally Understand it better by and by. That's the hope. That's the positive side. That's the side of that song I like. But, folks, those who are lost will understand it better by and by, too. It's awful. It's awful. sorry it's awful because they will know not just why they're lost. They'll remember why. And it's painful to know that there are people even who sit in seats in a church building, who remember why? <laughs> Son, remember. I think the rich may want us to know that. You, you could look at Luke 16, and, and you could say, well, all Adam has done so far is pulled out, pulled out some things from that text about hell and just scared us and made himself cry in the process. But I think the rich man would want us to know those things. But I want to suggest to you as we close that I know one thing the rich man would say to us because he basically says it in the story. You know what it is? You don't have to come here. You don't hear. The ending of this story is like everything else in it, heart-wrenching. But it's also meant to give us some level of hope. Beginning in verse 27, the rich man wants Abraham to send Lazarus back to those living brothers." You remember that? At the end of verse 28, there's a very astute observation given let, let, that he may warn them, right, lest they come to this place of torment, that they don't have to come here. If they'll just obey, they don't have to come here. But what, what, what's he realizing? He's realizing that those brothers who are living on earth, they can change their destiny. They can allow God to change their destiny by faithfulness if they'll just simply listen to one who would teach. But Abraham, in essence, says they've got the Scriptures. He calls them Moses and the prophets. They've got the Scriptures. Just let them hear hear the Scriptures. They they have what they need to to change their fate. And the rich man says something that's very logical in verse 30. No father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead... They'll repent. I mean, wouldn't you? <laughs> wouldn't you repent if that happened? If someone from the other side started coming and telling you all about started saying these things we've, we've talked about, look, I've experienced this. This is the way it really is. This is the way it's going to be forever. Wouldn't you come? And isn't that the way our world wants it? Isn't that why we're so fascinated with those stories? We, we want the spectacular, we want the thing we really can't even explain. We, we want that. It has to be spectacular. Just following the Bible's boring. Just following the Bible isn't spectacular. It's not enough. I need something supernatural or I'm not going to believe. It has to be above. It has to be beyond. That's what the rich man is trying to get Abraham to see. So Abraham speaks to human nature. And he says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't hear the scripture, neither will they be convinced if one comes from the dead or rises from the dead. By the way, have you ever considered the fact that it's just months, maybe a year or so after these words, after the story was told, that that was proven to literally be true? Because Jesus came back from the dead. And yet how many Jewish leaders saw him after he had been dead and came back and still didn't believe? So the story is proven to be true because they saw him. They interacted with him. And they still wouldn't believe it, as many of them wouldn't. And so since they wouldn't hear from God in that way, how would even a miracle change their minds? But with all that in mind, I want us to put ourselves in the story. We've seen some things the rich man would say to us if he were here, I think. And above all those lessons, I I know he would say, you don't have to come here. That's what he wanted for his own brothers. That's what he wanted for his kindred. And that's what any of us would say. you, You don't have to come here. But folks, we have the scriptures And we have one who has come back from the dead, son, daughter. Remember, in eternity. If we are able to look back to specific points, specific days in life, and I don't know what that's going to look like, but if we are. Here in a moment, Brother Ricky is going to lead us in what we often call an invitation song. We sing the same 10 or 12 invitation songs every week. We know them all by heart, it seems like. Will you Remember? that once again you just mouthed a few words or just stood there, already deciding where you're going out to eat, what ball games you're going to watch this afternoon, that lovely nap you're going to take in a little while, when you knew you weren't ready? Or, will you remember that this was the day She said, I'm not going there. Praise God, I'm not going there. Because I'm going to give my life to Christ. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what my family has said. I don't care what my church has said. The Bible says he who believes and is baptized will be saved. That's what I'm going to do. Or as a Christian, maybe it's something in your life that's kept you from being faithful. You've thought about responding. You know there's something holding you back. You know there's something that's got a hold of your heart, and it's not God. And it's time to say, I'm through with all of that. I want to be faithful. I want the church to pray with me. I want God to forgive me. I want encouragement. And I'm through with any excuses. I'm through gripping the back of the seat. I'm through just standing there. I'm through just hoping this song will end. It's over. I want to remember this day. I want it to be the day my life became fully His. What Will you remember as together we stand and as we sing?